The seven most common learner mistakes written by Scott Young, October 2013. I've written a lot about how to learn things better. In doing so, I've gotten a lot of emails from my readers attempting to learn anything from biology to basketball. I also see a lot of common mistakes people make, which makes it harder to learn. In this article, I wanted to share some of the most common mistakes I've seen and how you can avoid them. Mistake number one, memorizing what needs to be understood. I die a little inside whenever I get an email asking how to memorize formulas for a math or physics class. Memory is important, and you do need to be able to remember formulas and facts for exams but trying to memorize undermines your success in many subjects. Consider the classic physics formula, F equals MA. As a student, you might see this formula on a sheet along with dozens of other similar looking strings of letters and numbers. At first glance, it might seem like the only way to learn it is to memorize it. In reality, F equals MA is just the skin of a much deeper insight. Here, the idea is about how objects move. You should be able to look at this formula and see immediately that a 10-pound rock requires twice as much force as a 5-pound rock to get the same acceleration. You should be able to combine this formula with others, work equals FD, to figure out how much energy it takes to get those rocks moving at 100 miles per hour. The problem with memorizing these facts is that what you really need to learn are the connections between facts and the deeper insights they represent. The added benefit is when you approach many subjects from this perspective, the need to memorize goes away. Formulas are automatically remembered because they're the only logical consistent option with the mental framework you've created. Mistake number two, not enough practice. Going to class isn't practice. Highlighting in a textbook isn't practice. Rereading your notes is not practice. These activities may be helpful to a point, but your learning generally suffers when you spend most of your time on them instead of practicing. Practice means to try to answer a question without looking at the answer first. It means to perform a skill, not just learning about it. It means getting feedback whether your attempt was correct or not. It's almost impossible to practice too much, especially if the practice activity you're using is highly similar to the conditions you want to perform in. For highly conceptual subjects like math or physics, I find spending at least 50% of your time on practice to be ideal. For less conceptual subjects like languages or art, that number may be more than 90%. You can practice by self-testing even if you don't have a lot of material. The next time you're reading a book and you want to remember it deeply, Write questions instead of statements in your notebook. For example, if your book explains the difference between breadth-first and depth-first searches, don't jot down the differences. Write the questions such as, which type of search is guaranteed to halt? This way, when you use this notebook later, you can ask yourself questions about the subject again. If you remember, great. If you don't, go back to the page and check it again. Not only will this clue you in on the things you're forgetting, but the act of rechecking a mistake imprints that fact more deeply into your head than simply reading it. Mistake number three, not choosing the right environment. Making one big change is often easier than making many small ones. Your learning environment is often that big change that can have a dramatic impact on how much you learn for the same amount of effort and intelligence. Consider learning a language. 
You could buy self-study courses, sign up for a university class, and force yourself through endless grammar exercises. Or you could commit to immersing yourself for a certain amount of time. I've done this before by living abroad, but other learners have also gotten similar results without leaving home. Another example might be writing. You could read a ton of books on writing and type drafts in your spare time, or you could start a blog and start getting feedback on your writing immediately. If you're a blogger looking to improve further, writing under an editor for another publication or for a book forces you to reach a higher level of quality than your readers currently insist on. Sometimes the problem isn't you or the specific habits you've created, but your environment that's purposefully impeding your progress. Look for people who have growth much faster than you and ask yourself if they have different environments which facilitate that speed. Mistake number four, being a short-term perfectionist. Nobody wants to be found out. Nobody wants the people around them to realize that they are the only one who doesn't understand the lecture, who can't solve the problem on the blackboard, or who speaks with a heavy accent. The solution many people take is to wait until they are ready. Wait until you fully mastered something before you try to use it or get feedback on it. Unfortunately, with this attitude, you'll never be ready. Fail early and fail often is a better motto. Make mistakes so you can learn why they are mistakes. Many misunderstandings are like landmines, hidden until you walk over them accidentally. Only by walking on that terrain thoroughly can you expose them all. Now your ego might be bruised a little, but the benefits exceed the costs. Mistake number five, not being a long-term perfectionist. Short-term perfectionism is bad. This is the kind of wait-until-I'm-ready approach that keeps you from learning quickly. Long-term perfectionism, however, is good. This is the kind of perfectionism that doesn't wait to attempt, but doesn't settle on your current level being good enough. There's always room for improvement, and the long-term perfectionist isn't happy with just being merely adequate. Language learning perfectly demonstrates this contrast. On the one hand, you have short-term perfectionists who refuse to attempt a conversation out of fear that they'll make a mistake or look dumb. On the other hand, you have people who aren't long-term perfectionists, who are happy saying an expression incorrectly, repeatedly, as long as the other person understands them. The key to cultivating the good kind of perfectionism without the bad kind is to A, never hold back, but B, remember to learn something from every attempt. Mistake number six, learning without constraints. I frequently get emails from someone who says they want to master programming or learn Chinese. These aspirations are great, but most people will never do anything with them. It isn't enough to want to learn something. You need to actually have a system for learning it. The problem is that most systems try too much. Mastering programming, for example, isn't an actionable goal. Picking out a specific Ruby course and learning it deeply over the next month is. You need to convert your learning aspirations into projects that make choices about what you plan to learn and what you don't, or under what constraints you'll follow. So both my language learning experiment and the MIT challenge benefited from this approach. With the MIT challenge, I knew I wanted to learn more about computer science. There were many different approaches I could have taken, but I settled on working through MIT's computer science curriculum. This had certain advantages, such as strong fundamentals in mathematics that I might not have had the effort to put in learning otherwise, even though they're critical for advanced topics like artificial intelligence. 
but it also had disadvantages. So web programming wasn't a course I took, even though it's a skill that I'd like to develop. In my language learning project, restricting the learning efforts to not speaking English also constrained the project. I could have easily put the constraint on taking a certain number of hours of classes or preparing for a CEFR exam. Each would have dictated somewhat different learning focuses. Designing constraints is an important step that can take some research, especially if you plan on learning something for more than a few months. Interview other past learners and see which constraints, formal and informal, that they used. Mistake number seven, not being interested in what you learn. Many people have convinced themselves that boringness is intrinsic to a subject. So if you dislike accounting, math, or French, it's because those subjects are dull. And the best you can do is just grind through those classes. This is false. Subjects are interesting both for their natural appeal and how you choose to learn them. Meaning you can choose to learn something in an interesting way or in a boring way, irrespective of how inspiring your book or teacher is. You can make a subject more interesting by deliberately connecting it to the things you care about. Accounting may be boring, but perhaps your own money isn't. Math may be boring, but the patterns it describes in nature can be fascinating. Connections breathe life into subjects boxed into their esoteric compartments. The second way that you can make a subject more interesting is to hunt for questions. Ask yourself why things are the way they are. Curiosity is the antidote to boredom, but if you don't cultivate curiosity about a subject, you can't blame it later for not inspiring you. Not all topics will inspire. Others you might hate for reasons completely aside from their inherent boredom. Even if you use this method, you'll still likely have some subjects that you enjoy more than others. But that doesn't negate the potential to make a class more interesting by making connections and developing a curiosity about it. Making a subject more interesting is also what makes it easier to learn. Believing a subject is dull is a sure way to make it needlessly more difficult. Believing a subject has the potential to be interesting helps you avoid all of the previous mistakes I spoke about before. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott H. Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website, scotthyoung.com. Thank you.